And uh, when we're in the car, we like to listen to comedians. The kids love it. And so there's some uh, great comedians out there. We like Tim Hawkins, um, Michael Jr., Jim Gaffigan, and there's another comedian, John Heffron, and he's, he's pretty clean, uh, but he's, um, he's about my age. He's talking about, as a dad, how he's trying to get respect from his kids, maybe even fear from his kids, because he remembers back to when he was a kid and how much he feared his dad, and he just doesn't have that. So he's trying to figure it out, and he asks, um, he goes to ask his dad, and like I said, he's about my age, so his dad is what we call old school, right? And so he says, my dad has never laid a hand on any of us, but yet we all thought he would kill us at any moment. And so he calls up his dad and he says, how did you do it? What's the trick? And his dad says, here's the thing, John, you're way too nice. He says, you got to do something crazy in front of everyone. He says, go in, pick up the coffee table and chuck it through the window and do it with a smile on your face. He's like, oh man. And he tells a story about uh, when he was a kid, the dad wakes everybody up, pulls them out into the hallway, and for no reason at all, he just, bam, punches his fist through the bathroom door, destroys it. And he says, if I ever see another bike in my driveway when I pull up, I'm going to run it over. Takes a couple more steps and bam, he kicks in another door. He says, if you're not going to drink a full can of soda, then don't open one. Walks a little bit further and bam, punches through another door. He's freaking out. His brothers and sisters, their eyes are wide. They're up against the wall. They're thinking, this guy's going to kill us. He remembers, oh man, I forgot to take the the, uh, garbage cans in. Dad is going to kill me. He didn't realize until he was an adult that later on, his dad had already planned, had already scheduled to have all those doors replaced anyways. So some of you are looking at me and you're shocked that I'm like telling this story, right? This isn't parenting advice, okay? That's, that's Saturday. That's Dave Erickson. He's going to give that, that sermon. But some of us grew up in that kind of house. Some of us had an old school dad like that. And so today we get to talk about, um, I get to talk about the wrath of God. Yeah. Woo. You can feel the uncomfortableness in the room, right? Most of you have never heard a sermon on the wrath of God, and some of you are now figuring out, okay, how do I get out of here so I don't have to listen to a a sermon on the wrath of God? But it's one of the reasons that I really love this church. We, We do that. We talk about the wrath of God, and we sing about it as well. I love the song, In Christ Alone, and we sing it here often. It has this line in it, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there are churches that won't sing that song because of that line. Uh, The PCUSA, which has 10,000 plus churches, they were looking to put it in their hymnal, but they they wanted that line altered. And so they called the authors, the songwriters, uh, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend, and asked if they would change it from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. Another good, good line, but very different in, in meaning. And so they thought about it, and they said, no, we're not, we're not going to authorize that. We're not going to change that. And so it was left out of the hymnal, and there are other churches who won't sing that song as well. So, um, oh man, I'm behind here. Okay. Um, many today are uncomfortable 
with a God um, that would have wrath. And in trying to protect Him, they've tried to create a theology that removes the wrath of God. But as Christians, I think that, that we should love the wrath of God. And that's the, actually the title of my sermon today. Um, I'm not going to change it. Rick won't let me. But uh, I also think that it's true. Now, if you aren't a Christian, don't think that there's nothing to gain from what I'm uh, going to say today. That's not the case. It's just this small part in this larger case for why God is not only real, but worthy of trusting our lives to. And so, if you're a Christian, here's my challenge to you, that you would think about your own apprehensions, your own difficulties with the idea that God has wrath. Think about where do you tend to minimize or diminish God's wrath in your own theology or worldview, and be thinking about how to answer questions about God's wrath to the world around you. How do you explain sin to your children? How do you explain hell to your neighbor? How do you explain to your friends about God's judgment? All right, let me pray for us. God, we um, want to come to Your Word and be transformed in our hearts and our minds uh, God, let us be aligned with what You would um, have us learn today, the truth of, of Your nature, God. We love You and praise You. Amen. All right. So, I said that Christians should love the wrath of God. And the first reason, um, there's three reasons why, and I want you guys to track with me here. These are the reasons. The first one is because it is true. Christians should love the wrath of God because it demonstrates God's love for us, and Christians should love the wrath of God because it brings us peace. So, before we get too far along, what do we mean by the wrath of God? And so, because God is holy, then goodness comes from His very nature. Sin, then, is, a direct, is in direct opposition of God Himself. And so, A.W. Pink, um, on the, when he writes about the wrath of God, says, the wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. And so, God's wrath means that He intrinsically, actively, and intensely hates all sin. In the Old Testament, there are more than 20 different words used 580 times to describe the wrath of God. And so, we're going to look at just a couple of verses today. The first one, uh, Deuteronomy 4.24 says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so, God's this consuming fire, burning up anything that is unholy. Jared spoke last week about God's holiness and about Isaiah. And Isaiah says in, in uh, chapter 33, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And so, Scripture often describes God as this, this holy fire, and because of our sin, to be then near God is this dangerous thing. Sometimes people try to protect God's reputation uh, by differentiating, differentiating between this, this God of the Old Testament that is wrathful and then the New Testament Christ. Uh, who is loving. But it isn't the case that God's wrath is only described in the Old Testament. Jesus certainly talks about the reality of God's wrath. And Paul writes to the church in Rome, uh, this is Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so, we see here that there's this aspect of God's wrath that is seen in our lifetime 
when we live in opposition to the reality of God's universal truths, when we live as we please, there are consequences. A little bit further in Romans, it says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? But there's this coming wrath as well. And so God, by His grace, is sparing those in rebellion to Him, but that won't always be the case. It says that we're storing up for ourselves by the sinful… storing up God's wrath by the sinful things that we do. And so that wrath will be experienced at this future day. All right. Uh, this idea that it is true. What do I mean by it is true? So, if we believe that the Scripture is God's Word, then we see that God isn't uncomfortable about His wrath. It's not hidden. It's not disguised. It's not downplayed or excused. We see it in the Old and the New Testament. We see Jesus, the image of the invisible God. He declares it. Because it's true, we should love it, even if we don't always like the truth. Sometimes God calls us to, to believe hard things that are true, and we get this. As parents, we, we make our kids eat our vegetables, our coaches make their players, their athletes run drills. Hard things don't equal bad things, and so sometimes hard things are, in fact, good things. And so God's wrath is one of these hard things for us to accept, but it's good, and it's good primarily because God's wrath is not like our sinful wrath. God's wrath is a righteous and pure anger because God is totally unlike us. Rick spoke a, a few weeks ago on God's glory, and, and I just remember the quote um, by Wayne Grudem, and he says, the difference between the creature and the Creator is an immensely vast difference, for God exists in fundamentally different order of being. He then goes on to describe this, this difference is like uh, the difference between a candle and the sun, or, or a, a raindrop in the ocean. He, he continues that God's being is qualitatively different. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thought of God. And so, we've all experienced some angry, wrathful, fly-off-the-handle, tyrannical rage by someone in our lives. Maybe it was a parent, right? Maybe we had an old-school parent. Uh, maybe a spouse, your children, yourself. We immediately place this kind of central, sinful tantrum onto God. And so, we've all seen um, poor displays of love, but we give God the benefit of the doubt, right? We say that God's love is surely perfect, God's love is surely without limit, and we get that. So, why do we miss this qualitative difference when we're speaking about God's wrath? God necessarily exists in a more excellent way. He's vastly different in quality, without limit or imperfection in His wrath. So, we don't always like wrath because we think only in human terms, but God's ways are not our ways. So, think about this. If we're Christians and we're uncomfortable with God having anger, having wrath, having jealousy, we've got three options. Either God really isn't good, He really doesn't he really holds these, these flawed, these sinful attributes, meaning He isn't perfect, meaning He has this mean streak, or the Bible's wrong, 
It's mistaken in its presentation of God and His character. God is good, but when the Bible says wrath, it doesn't really mean wrath. And when it says sin, it doesn't really mean sin. And when it, when it talks about hell, it doesn't really mean hell. Do you see the problem there? Or we have misconceptions about God's wrath. Our understanding of God's wrath and other uncomfortable attributes have been misunderstood. And so we need to do, to do the hard work of understanding God's character. There are no other possibilities here, guys. This is the reality. No one here is advocating for the first two. I just made cases against both of those things. And yet, we still struggle with the idea of God's wrath. If you trust God's Word to be accurate and you trust God to be good, yet you don't like God's wrath, then it has to be that we have misunderstood something about God's wrath. So, how else are we misunderstanding God's wrath? All right, the first misconception is that, that it's not like human anger. Another misconception is that there are things that are right or proper for God, but not for us. And so, these are things like having jealousy or taking glory or being prideful. It's right and true for God to protect His name, His honor. It's not that God is conceited. He can't be. Conceited means to have a characteristic of false pride, having an exaggerated sense of self-importance. And so, essentially thinking that you are better than you are. But God can't be arrogant because He's God. Anselm described Him as a maximally great being. God is the greatest being. He's not bragging about being awesome. He's being honest. God's jealousy and wrath are often intertwined in Scripture, and so people are uncomfortable with both. Um, so let's tackle that just for a minute and try to gain some perspective. All right. Um, my neighbor, Dan, uh, it works for a, a company that, that does reviews on cars, and so every week he comes home with a different car, these new, new cars. And some of them are pretty cool, and some of them are pretty plain, you know. Um, but uh, if, if he came home with, like, a fully restored 1970s Bronco, like, my mouth would be drooling, right? This is… look at this thing. It's like a work of art that climbs over boulders, right? Or what about, like, a 69 Camaro? I mean, look at the love that has gone into this beautiful car. All right. I forgot where I was, where I was going here. Okay. <laughs> We'll just leave that up there. So, is it wrong for me to be jealous of my neighbor's car? Yeah, jealousy is wrong. It's talked about in the Bible. I have no claim on that car. I didn't save for that car. I didn't buy that car. That car is not mine. But, a wa- but if a wife doesn't have a jealous anger when another woman threatens their marriage by making advances on the husband, something's wrong. Even if she trusts her husband, if we aren't fighting for our marriages, if there's apathy there, it's because she doesn't really care or worse, she wants him to get caught. In the passage we looked at from uh, Deuteronomy 4, God has made this covenant uh, with and has blessed Israel by freeing them from slavery and oppression in Egypt. He was leading them to the promised land. He was going to make a great nation of them through which the Messiah would come. But Israel kept cheating on God with their idolatry, with their worship of false idols. And so Israel was committing adultery against God. God is the perfect husband to His bride, the church, and there are no other true gods 
but yet idolatry is dangerous and harmful to His bride. And so, God is right to be jealous, and His jealousy is good for His bride. And so, the same is true of God's wrath against sin for us. It is true that God is holy, but the truth is we can't talk about God's holiness without His wrath. God's wrath is necessary to make sense of the Bible, the cross, and our own pursuit of holiness. If sin is not dangerous to us, if sin is not offensive to our Creator and our King, our Savior, our Advocate, if it doesn't grieve the Spirit of God that lives within us, then why hell? And why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just brush it all under the cosmic rug? Without a proper understanding of wrath, none of this makes sense. And so, because it's true, it should change the way in which we perceive God. When we have a distorted or watered-down view of God, it changes how we relate to Him, how we worship Him, how we trust in Him, how we put our faith in Him and His promises. And so, a diminished view of God's wrath leads to a small God and a weak gospel. Another misconception uh, that we need to change is that God's wrath demonstrates God's love for us. And that's actually my second point. We should love the wrath of God because it demonstrates God's love for us. We're going to look back at those same passages that we looked at earlier. Notice that as we look at them in the context of the surrounding verses, for each of these verses on wrath, we cannot get away from God's love. So, the first one uh, we looked at was Deuteronomy 4.24. Just preceding that, it says, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you. And after that, it says, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which He swore to them. And so, we see God's love in that He blesses His covenant people. The next one uh, was Romans uh, 1.18. Just prior to that, in verse 16, it says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.'" And so, we see um, God's love, and then He makes provision for both Jews and Gentiles through the gospel. Our Romans uh, 2.5 passage proceeds with this uh, verse, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And so, we get, see God's love in His constant goodness and patience, His desire that we would repent and that we would turn to Him. Paul's talking to uh, Christians about how we're to love and serve one another in Romans 12. And he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And so, we're talk he's talking about genuine love, real, sincere love. What does real love do? It says that it abhors what is evil, to hate what is evil, and to cling to what is good. So, let me be clear here. It's not the case that we need to balance God's wrath with His love as rival attributes, or that we wouldn't appreciate His love without His wrath, but that God's perfect and passionate love demands His wrath. Without wrath against evil, God, would be, God wouldn't be loving 
And a love that doesn't contain a hatred of evil is unbiblical. But you don't have to believe the Bible to get this. We can be angry, not in spite of our love, but because of it. Our senses of love and justice are not in opposition to each other, but they act together. We get angry at loved ones who abuse themselves or at those that would harm or try to harm those who we love. The more passionate we, more passionately, pa- easy for me to say, the more passionately that we love, the fiercer our, our anger is towards whatever would harm those we love. The greater the harm, the more determined our opposition will be. And so parents get this. We're angry with those who would abduct or kidnap or try to harm our kids, and yet that's what sin does. Sin is a barrier to God that makes us self-absorbed, turning from God. Sin causes us to be out of relationship with God, to hide, to believe that we have to first clean ourselves up before we can earn our way back to God. Sin destroys and sin kills. And so God alone is the Creator, and He loves both His creation and His image bearers in a way that we only get a glimpse of as parents. He is rightfully angry at anything and anyone that would harm the people and the world that He created, and more so His adopted sons and daughters. Even if you don't have kids, we want swift and severe justice for criminals, for bullies, for anyone who would harm or make it difficult for others. We want to scream out to someone in control and authority, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see what's happening? Do something. This isn't unique to Christians. We live in a culture of outrage over market manipulation by big pharma and crony capitalism. There is outrage over the overreaching expansion of the government. There is anger over police brutality, over the targeting of our men and women in blue. We are outraged. We love to talk about justice, but we don't like the idea of God's wrath, but God's wrath is a very visible manifestation of His justice. If we're so resistant to the wrath of God, we might need to pause and think and reflect the next time we're so outraged about something, over wage disparity or unfair taxation of small business owners, over gun violence, over the ability to freely protect ourselves. We are capable of anger, of wrath over education and race and freedom and security. Why then is our culture so offended by a good God that is outraged at evil? It's because we don't think that God is good. Remember, God is patient. Again, it isn't this temper tantrum of emotion that flares up from time to time. When dealing with Egypt, He waits for 400 years. He sends prophets. He sends plagues before sending His judgment. It's because we're so self-centered that we only see our outrage as just, and we see everyone else's as ridiculous. God's wrath is perfectly just. It's perfectly righteous. It can't be deceived or persuaded. God's wrath is His absolute hatred against evil and idolatry. It's about making right God's name and honor. It's about justice for the weak and the oppressed. Now more than ever, we're living in this culture of outrage. Maybe this is our opportunity to use outrage as an apologetic for God's holiness. Our problem with God's wrath is that we have underestimated God's majesty, 
His glory and goodness, and that we have overestimated our own goodness. Theologian D.A. Carson describes God's wrath as the determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors Him, rebels against Him, calls Him into question. It includes will and choice, but also emotion. It results, its result is judgment, condemnation, and death. Thus, it is tied to the right understanding of the sheer holiness of God. And so, woe is me, is what Isaiah cries out when he's in the presence of God. And Jairus spoke last week that Isaiah cursed himself, and he fell to the floor, overwhelmed by his sin. And God is serious about sin and evil. The bad news is that as sinners, we are on the receiving end of God's wrath. We have stored up His wrath, described as as this cup of wrath that will be poured out in the last days. The problem is that apart from the gospel, we are the bad guys. We have rebelled. We have blasphemed. We have sinned against God and man. There's no way to earn righteousness and trying to obey God's law or ritual like circumcision It won't save us. We need to be rescued. We have to wonder what tasting a drop from that cup would be like. Is it that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know that you've done wrong, when you really hurt someone, someone you love, and you know that it might not be able to be fixed, be healed, be restored? Does it taste like despair, regret? godly sorrow. We do know that it's terrible. And so, was crucifixion torture? Absolutely. Was separation of the Son from the Father completely unknown and terrifying? I can't even imagine. But as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's contemplating what is to come, and He pleads, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. As Jesus prayed about what was to come, He was in such agony that blood was coming out through his sweat. And he said, yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so it's on the cross that Jesus drinks my cup and your cup and this tidal wave of wrath for sins past and sins to come so that we who are his are spared. We see God's love no more clearly than in the cross where His love is displayed simultaneously with His wrath. Because God is love, He intervenes. He rescues us from His wrath. And so, God's love is a testament to who God is. It's not who I am. It's not God doesn't love me because I'm this great guy or I'm lovable or intelligent or faithful or anything like that. He loves me because He is love. And God responds to me in love because of who He is. And so, the same God that stands against us because of His wrath, because of our sin, is the same God that then stands between His wrath and us because of His love. My final point is that Christians should love the wrath of God because it brings us peace. I said that God is serious about sin and evil, and the bad news is that As sinners, we're on the receiving end of God's wrath. And so, the good news in that God is serious about sin and evil is that all wrongs will be righted. God hates evil, and He's powerful enough to remove all sin from His presence. 
God has promised to do so, and God keeps His promises. God's promise is that through His wrath, the wicked will be avenged, or the… you know what I mean. <laughs> the, that those who are wronged will be avenged, that the wicked um, justice will be served, right? This is why we pursue murderers, even years later, right? They're gone. And yet detectives work cold cases to bring back, to bring peace to the families that have lost a loved one. As sons and daughters of God, we will have the peace that justice brings. Also, the fact that God will just judgely just allows us to forgive our enemies. Without God's wrath, evil goes unpunished. Because of God's wrath, repaying evil for evil has been removed from our responsibility. It's taken off our plate. We don't have to seek out vigilante justice. You're free then to forgive, to seek peace and be secure that justice will be served. So, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, maybe at work. Uh, I'm working on this sermon, and I'm thinking, and I, okay, I already know that I'm going to use Aslan as an example, um, and I'm sitting right over here, I'm, I'm taking notes, and Rick's up here, and he starts to go in, he's talking on, on God's goodness, and he starts to uh, talk about C.S. Lewis, and, he start, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And he starts to talk about <laughs> the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I'm like, don't do it, don't do it, that's mine, Right? And he, uh, of course, he's, he's going to talk about Aslan and how Aslan <clears throat> is, uh, uh, is, is dangerous but, but is good. And so I'm like, in my mind, I'm like trying to will him away from this, right? I'm like, Rick, don't do it. Abort, abort, right? And, but you know, Rick's going to do what Rick does. And so, you know, of course, uh, he's, he's a lot more animated than I am. He's got the, he's got the notebook over here and uh, he's, he's talking and he you know, he's doing his Rick thing and comes over here and he says, is he safe? Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, right? And so, sorry, that was my, <laughs> that's, that's why I don't do impersonations. All right. <laughs> it's a form of flattery. All right. So, a couple of things. One is that Rick and I are not the first and definitely we're not the last pastors to use that example. C.S. Lewis was a genius, right? He created this character and put him in this situation, uh, the, the Christ figure, which is Aslan the lion, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. He's a genius. Um, the second thing is it just shows how God's attributes are all intertwined, and we've all been stepping over each other and using these same kind of things because that is who God is. And the third thing is, all right, fine, take my example, I'll step it up. <laughs> now, here's the problem. I may have stepped it up a little too much, and so I'm looking around and I don't see any little, little kids, so I, I think we're okay. But if you're a parent, uh, I'm going to show a clip in a minute of, of a big, scary bear, right? If you've seen Revenant, this is not the clip from Revenant, all right? Um, but I'll give you a minute if, if you want to take him out. But, but nobody gets hurt. The bear is very angry, but nobody gets hurt. All right, that's my disclaimer. Uh, so when we diminish God's wrath, when we think that we are protecting Him, or some antiquated or unpleasant or intolerant aspect of God, here's what happens. We get the picture of, 
of, of God as this benevolent grandfather. We get the teddy bear version of God when he's, he's sweet and he's cuddly and he makes you feel better. But this is not the God of the Bible. When push comes to shove, who do you want to have your back? Who can deal with evil? And so Moses' song in Exodus 15 after escaping Pharaoh's armies and Israel being freed from generations of slavery, he says, the Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. Verse 3 says, the Lord is a warrior. He continues in verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. And so here's our clip. So we have a God who has wrath. We have a God who is a consuming fire, is a warrior, but He's for those who are His. If God is for us, who is against us? And so in conclusion, if there is no wrath, if God is love without anger at sin, then the cross is a ruse. It's a deception, a trick. He didn't need to go to the cross that God would intervene on our behalf, die on the cross, suffer terrible agony, and drink the cup of wrath that we have filled, that we have earned through our sin. To save you means that you are valuable to God. If there is no wrath, then God's love is just a concept. But love, but love is an action, and it was performed 2,000 years ago by God because of His love for you, because He values you. In a world of injustice, of a world of bullying, of violence, arrogance, oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. In our liberal and post-Christian world, the world, the word judgment is like nails on a chalkboard to some. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be yearned for, longed for, and celebrated. 
So we get to participate today in, in Lord's Supper together. And the ordinance of Christ is a, is a time when we look back in remembrance of what Christ was about to do as He gave this command before His death, in remembrance of His incredible love for us. But it's also a time of looking forward in the hope of heaven when Christ will come, when wrongs will be righted, and God will be glorified in His just judgments. So, for those participating in the Lord's Supper, when I'm done praying, you're welcome to come forward uh, to one of the three stations. And the center station here also has a, a gluten-free alternative. Uh, as I pray, I'm going to ask that the, the band would come up and uh, the, the servers would come up as well. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that Your Word reveals Your goodness and Your holiness and also Your wrath. I pray that we would trust in You more fully as we understand You better, as we understand who You are, Your love for us. God, let the seriousness of our sin um, impact how we live. God, let our hearts and minds be transformed, that we would be changed by Your Word in a way that we love and we serve differently, that we would share the gospel um, with urgency, God. God, I pray that we continue to step out in faith to a lost and hurting world. God, we want to do all this uh, for the praise of Your glory and Your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org dot org.